This podcast is sponsored by GoToMeeting at GoToMeeting.com. You're listening to Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale. Welcome to Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale, the weekly radio talk show where we unwrap and reveal the secrets that successful people use, and you can too. Available at SuccessUnwrappedRadio.com. These days, if you're in business or even if you just want to share some ideas with your friends or your family, sometimes email and voicemail just aren't enough. But there's a new solution, GoToMeeting's Web Conferencing Center. It's kind of like you're all in the same room together as you're sharing what's on your computer screen with them. If you want to try it out for free, you can try it for 45 days just by going to gotomeeting.com slash podcast. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash podcast for a free 45-day trial. And it just might change the way you do business online. My very special guest this week is Jason Oman, co-author of the number one best-selling book, Conversations with Millionaires, What Millionaires Do to Get Rich That You Never Learned About in School, and the creator of the step-by-step How to Make Money on Demand system, available at successunwrapped.com slash money on demand. Jason has a passion for helping people take their financial lives to the next level so they can remove financial stress and grow and evolve much faster and for turning entrepreneurs into best-selling authors. Jason, thanks for being here to help us unwrap the secrets of wealth building on Success Unwrapped. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. How exactly did your fascination with successful people and your drive to become successful yourself begin? Youthful uh, frustration. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, when I was growing up, I'm basically the youngest of five kids, and um, when I was growing up, I remember a couple different occasions of some interesting stuff happening that kind of created little turning points for me. And, uh, you know, one of them was um, when I uh, was a little kid, I wanted to get this cool, you know, freewheel bicycle that had handbrakes and stuff, and of course I had the, you know, this is back in the days of like coaster brake bikes and stuff, and the handbrake bicycles, you know, had just... Well, I guess they had been out for a couple of years or whatever at that point. And those were the cool kind of bikes. I didn't have one. I wanted one. All the other kids in the neighborhood had one, and I'd see them do tricks and jump the curves and do all kinds of stuff that you know was easier for them to do on that kind of bike than the kind that I had. And so I went to my parents one day and said, hey, you know, I want to get one of those bikes. What has to happen for that? And they said, well, if you, uh, you know, it was like halfway through the school year at that point, and they said, if you, through the rest of this school year, get straight A's, we'll get you one of those bikes. I'm like, I wasn't the best student in the world, but I'm like, done. So I basically, for the next six months, every day, come home from school, sit at the uh, the little counter, and I'd look out the window, because we're in a corner house, and I'd look out the window, and I'd watch the other kids while I was doing homework, trying to get my straight A's. I'd watch them flying past you know, the house in all directions and everything, all the kids in the neighborhood on their cool little bikes, and I'd watch them cruise around having fun while I'm doing my homework, and, you know, it was kind of just, uh, it was weird because it was a duality between, um, oh, that sucks. They're out there having fun while I'm in here doing this. And yet at the same time, it was kind of inspiring because it's like, yeah, that's why I'm doing this because I want to get one of those too. So I did that for six months. Uh, long story short, got straight A's and uh, brought my report card home. And I, I literally ran all the way home that day. I remember I was just like huffing and puffing, walking in the door. And uh, 
of course, parents weren't home from work yet, so I, I don't know what the heck I was doing running. But anyway, <laughs> so get home, they, you know, they finally come home, and I show them the report card, and they're like, oh, wow, this is great. And they're really proud of me. And, of course, they had long since forgot the promise they made six months prior. And uh, so they were totally shocked. And I said, yeah, yeah, so when can we go to the store to get, to get my bicycle so I can pick one out? And they're like, huh? Anyway, and then reminded them, and they're like, oh, yeah, about that. Long story short, Jason doesn't get his bike. So I'm like, all right, this sucks. But whatever, you know, you, you move on and you live on. Well, then skip ahead to uh, junior high. And I remember having to, you know, basically we, when we went shopping for clothes, basically the place we'd go to most often was a place called Thrift Village, which is like a used, you know, thrift store. Yeah. And, um, you know, used clothes and stuff like that. And uh, we'd get, you know, clothes there and everything and, you know, we're always pinching pennies and the whole bit. I remember uh, going grocery shopping sometimes and, you know, my stepmom would always have coupons and, you know, the whole bit. And um, so, anyway, one of the one day, you know, it was no big deal to have kind of the used jeans and shoes and shirts and all that because nobody else knew where they came from. Uh, except for one day in seventh grade when I was changing in gym class in the locker room. And I had, you know, tidy whitey briefs on with big black felt pen marker Gomez on the underwear. Mm. I'm, you've met me. I'm pretty much as white as they get. <laughs> you know, blonde hair, blue eye, you know, white boy. And here I'm with underwear that says Gomez on it. Obviously, there's an issue here. You know, those aren't my underwear. Yeah. And that was, you know, so add some little moments like that together, and it creates quite a bit of like, you know, I am never going to grow up and be poor. And if I ever have children, I'm going to make sure they don't have to go through what I had to go through. And so at a very young age, I started, you know, wanting success, but not knowing and having a single clue what to do about it, just knowing I wanted money and, you know, when I grow up, I want to be rich. And, you know, so in teenage years, I remember hearing about some book called Think and Grow Rich, and immediately it just, like, hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, oh, my God. So I went and got a copy of the book, and um, that started kind of a journey, knowing that there was actually information that's documented on how success and wealth is built and created. And that basically put me on a, uh, a quest through all of my adult years and everything as well, um, just kind of searching out the information, you know, the resources for how to create wealth, how to build and generate wealth. And, uh, you know, I remember, I don't know how many hundreds of books and courses and audio programs and stuff I've been to. I remember back 10 plus years ago, I remember making a list of uh, all the seminars and like live events that I can remember going to. And when that list got to 100, I stopped counting. So, you know, I mean, I literally have probably in the pretty decent six figures as far as books and audio programs and home study courses and seminars and workshops and, you know, all kinds of stuff that I've been to and stuff over the years. And I just became a really obsessed student of success and wealth and how it's done. And uh, as a result of, you know, taking some action and, and uh, starting my first business up on, a, uh, on an infomercial uh, for two and a half years, hosted by Fran Tarkenton, who's the uh, NFL Hall of Fame quarterback and all that. And then skip ahead a little bit, I created a book called Conversations with Millionaires. That became an instant number one bestseller. And, uh, you know, as a result of all those things, I was able to kind of have the, 
the luck, if you will, of being around and being able to hang out and stuff with a lot of other very, very wealthy people, millionaires and multimillionaires. And, you know, put it all together, and it kind of starts forming and crystallizing a very, you know, if all you read all these books, hundreds of books, and go through all these audio programs and seminars and stuff, and really, they all say a lot of different things, and they say a lot of different things in a lot of different ways, but what I was eventually able to do is kind of put together a very simplified uh, system that encapsulates all of everything else that all the other things teach and all the other people talk about and stuff like that into literally how to create money. And I really look at the whole kind of wealth and money game, you know, speaking about, you know, how to build wealth and stuff like that as really a two-part process. And it really just cycles upon itself once you get the ball rolling on it. So you have, you know, in your mind visualize like the left side and the right side. So left side is number one, and it's just create money, right? And it's really create excess money. And then on number two, it's invest excess money. So if you know how to create money and more than you need to get by, and then you take the extra amount and you invest it, and then you continue to create more than you need to get by, and you continue to invest the extra, eventually your investments are creating more, plus you're creating more, and it just turns into this you know, ongoing cycle of the rich getting richer. And so what I ended up doing was kind of figuring out... Um, you know, how do you, what is the simple process for creating money? The way wealthy people do it, the way the rich do it, as opposed to the way everybody else is doing it. And, um, you know, I basically ended up kind of creating this five-step formula um, that I call money on demand, how to make money on demand. That's the how to create money, and then it doesn't do any good to know how to invest it if you ain't got nothing to invest. So it all starts with kind of understanding how to create the money. And then for me, I noticed that I was actually able to apply that five-step formula, the money-on-demand formula. I was able to apply it at bigger and bigger levels to get more and more results in less and less time once I became a number one best-selling author. So as soon as I became a number one best-selling author, I just noticed this huge shift as far as what kind of options and things that I could do to create money and to create even faster and to create more money each time I did it faster and faster. So after realizing that, what I ended up doing is start saying, hey, you know, when I originally created my number one bestseller, it took me a little over 90 days to create the book and become a number one bestseller. And then once I kind of figured out how to do that, I helped a guy in Canada go from no book to finish his book and number one bestseller in 60 days. Then I had another lady from California who I taught to do it. She went from no book to number one bestseller in 58 days, breaking the 60-day record. But so far, the record still is uh, one of my clients, Matt, who did it from no book to number one bestseller in 45 days. And we are, as we speak, on day 11. It's day 11 right now of I'm helping somebody, and our goal right now is to go from no book. 11 days ago, she had no book. She finished it two days ago, and now we're working on helping her become a number one bestseller. The original goal is to help her become, go from no book to number one bestseller in 30 days. We're on track to do it in possibly half that time. Wow. And she is going to have an extraordinary shift in what kind of possibilities and opportunities open up to her. Literally in, you know, a couple of weeks, an entire world is going to open up to her and all kinds of possibilities that she never had before because she's going to be a number one bestselling author. And uh, there's just something magical in the world that we live in about 
number one best-selling author as kind of your title or as your status or as your you know credibility, you know the whole alphabet soup in the world that we live in of PhD and MBA and all this stuff. Well, in the society that we live in, number one best-selling author trumps pretty much all the alphabet soup you could you could handle. But it takes years and years to get all the alphabet soup stuff. But I can help somebody get the number one best-selling angle, number one best-selling author, you know, angle for credibility. I can help them do it in a few weeks now. So you know, it's it's a pretty powerful uh, kind of thing. So anyway, that kind of encapsulates kind of up until we're on that now. Yeah, so I can see how being a number one best-selling author would allow you to leverage opportunities and create more money out of that. But I know that a lot of the listeners have the same question that you had, which is how do you create that excess money in the first place? Yeah, well, you know, I kind of break it down into, you know, I'm all about trying to make things as simple and easy to duplicate for people as possible. And in order to create excess money, you can do it through trading your time and your labor. We all know that. Everybody, if, you know, if they have a full-time job and they're just barely getting by, they're kind of breaking even, it's covering their bills. Some people a little bit less than breaking even. But, you know, around about, for the most part, people with a full-time job are covering their nuts, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so they know that they could probably go and get a part-time job to make some extra money. And as long as they didn't increase their spending, they'd end up with some excess money. Problem is, it wouldn't be very much money. And they'd be trading a whole lot for it because, you know, anybody who's worked a full-time job knows that takes up a lot of time. You don't have much of a life left over after the job anyway. (laughs) And if you go suck up the rest of whatever life you had left by a part-time job, you have no life. Yeah. (laughs) The constant (laughs) definition, you know, your picture is in the dictionary under no life. (laughs) You know, so we got to figure out, you know, how do do rich people do it? Because they don't, you know, it's amazing to go out on a you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know middle of the week to go out at like ten or eleven or one o'clock and drive past a golf course and see people who in the middle of the day while everybody else is cranking away in a cubicle working their job, somebody else on middle middle of the day in the middle of the week is out playing golf. And what's funny is they're probably making more money while they're playing golf than the people who are cranking away at a cubicle working a job. Mm. And so, you know, let's kind of talk about how do you create money without trading your labor hours for it? Right. Now, I'm not saying without trading any time whatsoever. You know, so people that are out there looking for the magic bullet where literally, you know, for, they can make all, they can make a million dollars without doing anything and without spending a split second moment to do anything. And they expect a million dollars is going to show up. It just does not work that way. Now, with that having been said, you can, if you know the right things to do, which we, you know, we can talk about in the time we have here a little bit, but if you know the right things to do, you can spend a little bit of time doing the right kind of things that set up a system, an automated income stream of, of some sort, to where then, now that you've invested time and you've done that work once, you can continue to get paid from that work you did before and keep on making the money from it. So it's to work once, you know, the, the most people work a job and they work once, get paid once. Rich people work once and continue to get paid from the work they did before. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just to put simple kind of analogy and metaphor, you know, a simple example for this is somebody who writes a song and records it in a studio, and then for the rest of time, that song can get played on radio and, and things like that, 
generating money for the artist who wrote the song. They still had to write the song. They still had to go record the song in the studio. But once they did that work, now they can continue to get paid from that work that they did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, there's, there's literally estates right now where the artist is dead and gone, but the estate of that person is still making money from a song that was written and recorded decades ago. Hmm. And so, you know, everybody can kind of understand, you know, when somebody, when a song is played on the radio, there's some artists getting a royalty for that. And that's the most kind of mass market, easy to understand, you know, method of work once, keep on getting paid. Another example is when, for example, a actor does a movie, shoots the movie, does everything. That's a lot of hard work, but they do it, and they do it once. And then as the movie goes in the theaters, they make money. But then also as rentals happen, you know, people are renting the movie, DVD, VHS, whatever the case may be. And, you know, the actors can still be making money on that depending on what their contract was. So it's a work once, continue to get paid from the work, you know, concept. So that's one way to do it is set up automated income streams. Another way to do it is through creating large chunks of money. So you can either create large chunks of money or you can create streams of income. And, of course, the streams of income can end up being large as well. But I kind of look at the whole making money like the rich is broken down into either large chunks of money, like one time, versus income streams. So, for example, um, I created a book, a second book, that I did after the first one, and that book took me 25 days to create, and I got two different checks for over $104,000 from a book that took me 25 days to create. So if you look at the return I got as far as money, you know, and compare that with the amount of time I spent you know, in creating that for the money, that's a pretty inversely, in, inversely proportional kind of thing. You know, over $200,000 from 25 days of work, how much do most people make in 25 days of work? And I did that part-time. Right. So that's a large chunk of money scenario. Now, that also would have turned into an ongoing stream of money, but the company that I did the project with got bought out by another company and blah, 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 long story short, it stopped. But it's only one example of possibilities. And, you know, if we had, you know, a week worth of time to talk, we could <laughs> we could go over a million different examples, but... Well, it's kind of ironic because the examples you've chosen come from the arts sector, music, acting, writing. And traditionally, a lot of us think of those people as being starving. You know, the the creators in our society are kind of left to be not rich. They're creative. They're not rich. Now, I believe that we all want to be creative. We all have creativity, but I think there's some people listening that are going to say, well, I'm not creative, so therefore how can I tap into this kind of recurring passive income strategy? For somebody who's not creative? Yeah. Or thinks they're not? Or thinks they're not. Yeah, that's really the key right there. It's impossible to not be creative. Okay? The problem is is that people have a definition and a very limited structured box that they put the definition of creativity in. Um, if, you know, there's nobody here that, uh, nobody listening to this, that if, for example, you were put in a situation where you need to find some type of creative solution to some kind of problem that you were facing, you know, let's say, for example, somebody is, well, it doesn't matter what their height is. Let's say, for example, they wanted to 
reach something that was on a very high shelf in a garage, but they're not tall enough, what would they do? And they would creatively go find something to stand on. (laughs) (laughs) But this is somebody who doesn't think they're creative. You know, I mean, it's impossible to not be creative. We as human beings are wired in such a way that when there's a problem, if we actually just decide to think and come up with some kind of way to solve the problem, we'll end up coming up with some ways. It's literally just the way our brain is wired. So the first thing somebody has to do is just completely eliminate this whole concept of they're not creative. Creativity comes in so many different forms. I, for example, you know, anybody who's kind of seen some of the different stuff I've done would undoubtedly say that I'm, you know, Jason Oman is a creative person. But you know what? If you put a pen and paper in front of me and say, draw something, I mean, it's hard for you to even decipher if I draw a stick figure what the heck it's supposed to be. <laughs> I cannot draw. It's not, <laughs> it's not in my bones, you know, I don't have that kind of thing. Now, I could learn how and all that, but that's a whole other topic. Point is, is that, you know, I could sit there and if I thought to myself, and I've never been able to draw, so if I automatically put myself in the box with the definition of, you know, I'm not creative, well, I would have completely limited myself in my entire life, and especially in the business and entrepreneurial world, because I would thought I'm not creative. So therefore, you know, somebody who thinks they're not creative and won't do anything to, you know, understand that creativity has many different definitions, if they put themselves in a box like that, it's, you know, you pretty much limit yourself in the entrepreneurial world because it revolves around creativity, just not the kind of creativity that what most people think it does. So, you know, the entrepreneurial world, some people think, well, I'm not creative enough to write a book. Well, it's funny because the lady I'm helping right now finished her book in nine days, and she, nine days ago she told me she's not creative enough to do a book. Hmm. And I said, well, we're going to change that right now. <laughs> nine days later, her book's done. It's being printed as we speak. It'll be ready to ship out on Monday. So it's all definitely doable and possible. First thing people need to do is stop putting themselves in a box of limitation and just realize there's nothing that you can't do. If somebody else has done it, it can be duplicated by just deciding. You can get Jason's How to Make Money on Demand system at successunwrapped.com slash moneyondemand. That's successunwrapped.com forward slash money. On demand. And I hope you've enjoyed the first segment of our interview, but it's not over. There's a full 200% more than what you just heard where we delve deeper into these success principles. To unwrap the full interview and get lots more tools for success, just sign up to become a Success Unwrapped member on any level you choose at successunwrapped.com slash members. This has been Success Unwrapped with Heather Vale. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of Success Unwrapped, helping you to unwrap and discover your own potential for success. Until next time, keep unwrapping. I'm Heather Vale. This podcast is part of the Blueberry Network at Blueberry.com. That's spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com.